All right. I'm uh, going to speak to you this morning from Luke 1, and I'm going to read Luke 1, 26 to 38. Um, just the Christmas uh, story of when the angel Gabriel came to visit Mary. This is what it says in Luke 1, 26 to 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. So Mary was a young girl, probably, I don't know, 15 or 16. She couldn't have been much more than that. And when the angel of the Lord appeared to her, it says that she was afraid. It says in 129, she was greatly troubled, but then the angel tells her not to be afraid. She was very visibly afraid. Well, I would have been too. Suddenly this angel comes and is standing before me. I would have been fearful, probably. So the definition of the word is to be greatly disturbed, perplexed, or thrown into great confusion. That's what she felt. What is going on here? And what she, while she was trying to figure out what the angel was saying, he went on and said some unbelievable things. And I'm not going to read them all because I just read them. But he said, don't be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. And he goes on to tell her what's going to happen to her. And she's incredulous because she's a virgin. How can she become pregnant? She wants to know how it can be so. And the angel tells her it will be through the Holy Spirit. Now, I can't imagine all the things that are going through her mind, but what would her, her fiancé Joseph say? How would she explain that she was pregnant to her family? Would, would, would Joseph believe her? Would her family believe her? What would the townsfolk say? Would her reputation be ruined? Who's going to actually believe that she hasn't been with another man? But then she utters probably the most astounding words that we get in the New Testament. And Mary said in verse 38, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. 
let it be to me according to your word. These are the same words that Jesus utters 33 years later in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. So what I want us to look at this morning is two ways to live. Two ways to live. The first one is, not your will, but mine be done. The second one is, not my will, but yours be done. Okay, so the first one is, not your will, but mine be done. The second one is, not my will, but yours be done. These are just two ways to live. First, not your will, but mine be done. What does it look like to follow our own wills? From John Allen comes this. A lady answered the knock on her door to find a man with a sad expression. I'm sorry to disturb you, he said, but I'm collecting money for an unfortunate family in the neighborhood. The husband is out of work. The kids are hungry. The utilities will soon be cut off and worse. They're going to be kicked out of their apartment if they don't pay the rent by this afternoon. I'll be happy to help, said the woman with great concern, but who are you? I'm the landlord, he replied. <laughs> Not your will, but mine be done. <laughs> There's an old book called New Rules written by Professor that was good material, by the way. I was expecting a lot more laughter on that one. Anne gave that joke to me. There's this old book called, that, that joke never gets old, does it? It, always gets, it gets a chuckle about 25% of the time. All right. In an old book called New Rules, there's this professor uh, at New York University, Daniel Yank Yanklovich. Yanklovich, I guess how you say it. And he, sh he documents the shifts in America's uh, social values. So the book is subtitled, Searching for Self-Fulfillment in a World Turned Upside Down. Um, so the old rules, Yanklovich says, stress duty to others, particularly to one's family. If someone were selfish and got caught, it was embarrassing and looked ugly, but no longer. In what Yankelovich calls the duty to self ethic, our primary responsibility is for our own needs and interests. All other relationships and values must fit into that order of priority. So he feels that this might be liberating on some level, but he's actually, he's at, he's, at least he's honest. Um, after tracking 3,000 people in personal in-depth interviews and analyzing hundreds of thousands of questionnaires, he admits that so far the search for self-fulfillment has been futile. It has resulted in insecurity and, in, and confusion. What is self-fulfillment, he asks, and when you find yourself, what will you do with yourself? That's the question he asks. After all that analysis. But what about evangelicals? James Davison Hunter examined students and faculty at 16 leading evangelical colleges and seminaries. 
and he used Yankelovich's questionnaire and he concluded that evangelicals are actually more committed to self-fulfillment than their secular counterparts. The percentage of evangelical students agreeing with these statements far exceeded the corresponding percentage of the general population, he wrote. Self-fulfillment is no longer a natural byproduct of a life committed to higher ideals, but rather is a goal pursued rationally and with calculation as an end in itself. The quest for emotional, psychological, and social maturity therefore becomes normative. I, I think we all agree with this, right? It just seems to be what's happening more and more. And it's in the church. It's all over the place in the church. So the truth is that self-expression and self-fulfillment are just another word. Word They're words for self-centeredness, aren't they? Are they not? For ego, for not your will, but my will be done. I'm number one in the order of priorities. William Temple, the Archbishop of Canterbury, way back at the beginning of the 20th century, in his book, Christianity and the Social Order, said this, I'm the center of the world I see, and where the horizon is depends on where I stand. Education may make my self-centeredness less disastrous by broadening my horizon of vision. It's like a man climbing a tower who sees further in terms of physical vision while remaining himself the center and the standard of reference. I am the center of the world I see. I think he was describing the world around him. And this is actually what the Bible calls sin. The self-centeredness, that, that's what the Bible calls sin. And I wonder if this life of self-centeredness is actually working for people. Eugene Peterson in his book, Earth and Altar, describes what a self-centered life yields. He says, those people who pray know what most around them either don't know or choose to ignore. Centering life in the insatiable demands of the ego is the sure path to doom. They know that life confined to the self is a prison, a joy-killing, neurosis-producing, disease-fomenting prison. Why is that? Because anytime you put yourself at the center you are only as good as you can be compared to somebody else. That's how you have to evaluate how you're doing. If you're better than somebody else, the only way to feel good about yourself is to feel better than someone else. And that's the rat race, my friends. It never ends. You begin to obsess over it. It becomes the reason for living, which means that we're never at peace because there's always someone better than we are. It is sinister and it is, it is subtle, but every single one of us struggles with putting ourselves at the center. But it's a slavery that has no end, a neurosis-producing, disease-fomenting prison. So how do we get away from it? How do we not be, not your will, but mine, but how do we become not my will, but yours? Well, it's humility. 
It's what Mary showed us. So number two, not my will, but yours be done. As C.S. Lewis said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. You get that? It's not thinking less of yourself. It's not self-loathing. It's just thinking about yourself less. I think this is what describes Mary's reaction. It wasn't about her, and she knew it wasn't about her. She'd been chosen by God, and she said, whatever whatever you want, whatever you think. And it's certainly what Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane. He had limited himself. All he could see before him was this hardship that was waiting for him. He was sweating drops of blood, but he said, I put myself in your hands, not my will, but your will be done. So I realize I do something regularly. Probably a lot of you have seen this in me. I have this pattern uh, that I've seen when I do something in public. So whether it be preaching, playing the trumpet, giving a talk, whatever it is that I, that I do in public, um, what, I, what I tend to do is, I've, I've realized this about myself, I begin to grease the skids by telling everyone how bad it will be and how bad and woefully inadequate I am, and it'll be bad. And I've realized, well, part of it is that I actually think that too, but, but a lot of it, a lot of it is a defense mechanism. Why? Because if I can lower everybody's expectations, then whatever I do will be pretty good. And then people come out and say, oh, that was good. I didn't think that was so bad at all. You really underplayed it. And then I feel good about myself. You know, um, and you know what that is? It's just manipulation. It's just manipulation. That's the way to be not your will, but mine be done. I got to get it manipulated that way. And it's the opposite of humility. So many people tear themselves down. I'm included with them and somehow think it's humility. It's not. It's not. It's pride. It's thinking too much about myself. That's why Lewis's adage is so good, I think. It's not thinking less of yourself. Let's take that first part of that phrase. It's not thinking less of yourself. The Apostle Paul addresses this, I think, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Listen to what he says. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. And listen to this. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. So first, Paul's not worried about anyone else and how they might judge him because he's not in the comparison game. He doesn't care how he measures up. He's doing what he thinks God's calling him to do, and that's what he's doing. It doesn't matter what other people think. And he says that he doesn't even judge himself. In other words, he doesn't engage in self-condemnation or in self-loathing. And then he makes this outrageous statement, for I am not aware of anything against myself. Is he saying that he's perfect? No. Because he follows it with, but I'm not thereby acquitted. Doesn't mean I'm 
I haven't done wrong things or I have wrong things in my life, but I'm not going to judge myself. What's the summary? Let me give you what I think the summary of what he's saying here. There are probably loads of things wrong with me, but I don't really care what others think. And I don't even really care what I think. I don't make the judgment call. God is the one who judges me. It's about him and what he thinks. But don't forget, he also sent his son to forgive me. So I seek him and I put my life in his hands. This is what it means to not think less of yourself. You put yourself in God's hands. You stop playing the comparison game which thereby frees us up to do the second part of what Lewis says. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Quit being feeling judged by people and thinking about yourself. Quit judging yourself, which you're thinking about yourself. It's thinking less. It frees us up not to be always thinking about ourselves and actually be interested in others. If we're worried about what God thinks and he's forgiving me, then I don't have to think about myself. I can actually love other people, which is actually what the summary of the law and the prophets is, right? It's loving others. But we're so busy being the center of it that we can't love people. Now we can love people and sacrifice ourselves for them. So how do we get to the place where we put ourselves in God's hands? See, that's, this is the rub, right? I could quit right here and just say, just do it and be humble and, don't, and think less of yourselves. But we just do. So... I read uh, Paul Tripp's blog this week. I read it every week, but he points out a verse in in last Wednesday's blog that I know I've read probably a hundred times, if not more. Um, But it never quite struck me like it did this week. In in, uh, verse 10 of Isaiah 53, he says this, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. So that's actually not a good translation of that. It doesn't give the full sense. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. For the word hapis. So the ESV translates that word. It was the will of the Lord. But the real sense of the word is this. To take a high degree of pleasure or mental satisfaction in. So yet God took a high degree of pleasure and mental satisfaction in crushing his son. Does that sound a little bit morbid? Is God the father some kind of a morbid deity that takes pleasure in crushing his son? No, that's not the point. Because you have to see that verse up next to what John 3.16 says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. But in order that the world might be saved through him. So the delight that he had to send his son to save people for himself. He took great pleasure 
in not condemning those people. He took a high degree of pleasure or mental satisfaction in crushing his son because of what he would gain from that. We so often think that God is the ogre, God the Father's the ogre that sent his son who's the nice one. But it was God the Father who sent his son because of his great love for his people. Why wouldn't we put ourselves in his hands Instead of, uh, instead of playing the comparison game all the time, we play the comparison game. We always want to know how we're doing. We always feel guilty because we're not measuring up. And I'm not saying that you don't look at the scriptures and you don't obey. What I'm saying is we are obsessive. And we take our eyes off of Jesus. Every single lack of personal holiness is a lack of believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a lack of believing that I'm loved, I'm accepted, that all my sins have been erased, that they've been thrown as far as the east is from the west. And when I lose focus on that, I take matters into my own hands and I look for love in all the wrong places and I invest myself in things that will never satisfy and I pursue those things. And that is because I'm focused again on myself. Not your will, but mine be done. But when I confess that and I come back again and I relish the fact that I am loved, that I am accepted, that he sings over me, that he loves me. When I can look at that, I can take my eyes off of myself and I can say, He's got my back, now I can sacrifice for others. You see how this works? This is Mary, not whatever you want. No matter how it's going to look to the people out there, no matter how I will be viewed or perceived by other people, even if Joseph breaks up with me, it doesn't matter whatever you want from me because I know you love me and I know you have me. This is freeing. That's the freedom of the gospel, brothers and sisters. That's the gospel. And it really changes everything.